Welcome to Trunk Church. Come drink the blood of God with us. Bless you for being an angel Just when it seemed that heaven was not for me I'm Cosima B. Concordia and I'm a leather dyke and a writer. And what about you? My name is Aurora Laybourne, and I teach ethics and politics at the largest Catholic institution in America. <laughs> oh my god, incredible. I don't think that you said that you clarified that it was specifically a Catholic institution, which I think really like oh, it is. gives our whole <laughs> vibe a lot more cred, you know? Like we're there. We're in it. I am. Yeah, I am. I'm in it. <laughs> you're, you're in it. I, I'm just watching from afar in horror and in sympathy. <laughs> I, know, I had that realization really recently where I was just thinking like, wait, what is my bio? What am I? How should I describe myself? And I, and I had that realization. And it, it made me feel really good about myself, but also really terrible about myself. So today we're going to be talking about Lore, who's kind of the woman behind the man, but it's almost, that's a little bit of, you know, giving Bataille too much credit, just kind of, she's the woman, the, the woman. And as uh, the surrealist Lyris would say, the saint of the chasm, and Bataille calls her uncompromising, pure, and sovereign, the foreword to the book in which her writings are collected in the English edition published in 1995 says that it is tempting to romanticize lore in the most sublime and violent sense as consumptive poet, a fervent revolutionary, Bataille's great love. But if she is radiant and dirty, she is also insolent. That, it seems, is what saves her. So this episode and the next one to come is about the insolent saint of the chasm. So this is kind of a follow-up to our topics about Bataille and like Christian mysticism. And so that's L-A-U-R-E, lore. And she's just kind of lost to history by I feel like the majority of philosophy and just like classic canons. And that is a shame. And we are both huge followers i think of her cult now and we're going to talk about why today content warning we are going to be talking about a lot of rough subjects which include sexual assaults and child abuse so if any of that feels a little too much then you know maybe this is uh, some, some episodes that you could um not listen to but if not you should keep listening and, and you're welcome what makes Lore such a provocative figure is the content upon which she wrote about and the honesty that she presented her thoughts, which brings up a lot of very difficult content. So take care of yourselves. Yeah, take care of yourselves. That's, that's a great thing to do for all of us. Reading through Lore, it's just, it's so, I don't think... I've read any thinker that like goes back this far that is so, feels so relevant to so much queer theory you know just like these really 
incredible critiques of the family and this really intense understanding of how those things reify like all oppressive structures and the way in which queerness is never mentioned anywhere in anything but certainly everything about what she stands for is a queerness is a living against (laughs) instead of a with um, of this being living a true life regardless of the consequences like doing it no matter what everyone no matter what people think of you and I think that that is such a deeply meaningful example honestly like I got this book I've been like looking for it for over two years now, I think, when I heard about her from a friend online who is like a big Bataille person. I found it in like a random bookstore and I think in the UK, somewhere in Europe. And like I was able to nab it for cheap, which was amazing because it's been out of print. Yeah. And I just felt like really lucky to be able to to have that. But I often buy books and then I like, you know, have them on a to be read pile And I got it several months ago. And so then we were going to do an episode on her. And so we both really completely dived into the subject matter. And it was so moving. Honestly, I haven't I haven't felt so enwrapped by a thinker and by the writings of someone in such a long time. And it's, uh, you know, it's not even that long of a book. Lore, the collected writings It's mostly a short story that is called Story of the Little Girl, which is an autobiographical slash short story account of her life when she was a little girl. And then a collection of her work on the sacred and her poetry, and then a bunch of her correspondences with various people, um, one of the primary of those being Bataille. And then some commentary by Bataille because she died quite young at at 35 and just kind of like the huge legacy she had. Mm -hmm. The huge invisible legacy. I also like was really struck by her work or felt like a confusing degree of closeness or affinity to her. And again, that's we already know I'm a narcissist. I actually put in my notes regarding one of her her letters and a couple of her fragments tattoo this on your soul. <laughs> oh my god. I actually at several times when I was reading, I I definitely was like I am annoyed with her <laughs> in the same way that I've been annoyed with Aurora. <laughs> <laughs> where where I'm just like Jesus Christ, like what are you doing? In, like, the most loving way possible, like, where, like, you're just really going at it right now. And, uh, and it's, it's a whole, oh. yeah, it's, it's quite the thing. <laughs> Wait, okay, I, I want to hear more about this, but first let's, I guess, we <laughs> can unpack her, um, her biographical information a little bit more. So I'll start with. Her dates. The important thing, and I know this is the only thing that our listeners care about, is her sun sign. And she is a Libra because she was born on October 8th, I think 1903. It's very important information. And then she died in November. Wow, that's such important information. Thank you. 
But also, again, the narcissist in you is like, oh, of course she's a Libra. Of course I feel affinity with a Libra. Wait, why would you feel affinity with a Libra specifically? Oh, there's just been a lot of important Libras in my life. That's the, as much as one chooses certain types of magical thinking to buy into. And why, why is that a narcissistic impulse? I don't understand. If, if you relate, right. you know, that's just like a category. I feel like you call yourself a narcissist too often. Some of your impulses may be mm-hmm. narcissistic. We all have narcissistic impulses, obviously. But I think that you tend to categorize a lot of your impulses into narcissism mm-hmm. as a primary modality when it's not necessarily as big of a uh, thing for you as, as you make it out to be. Uh, maybe I should be reaching for, what is it, Amor Suat, love of the self? Yeah. That's a philosophical term of art. So maybe I should just be like, oh, that's my Amor Suat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, and, and like narcissism and love of the self are so different, right? They're extremely different. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're right, you're right. So that's that's me starting off the, the biographical information. Um, so... Um, a Libra. Okay. Laura was a Libra. And so the whole context for her family is that she grew up in a, I guess, not old money, but like a semi-bourgeoisie family in France. And she was always very at odds in her nature against her mother and against her sister and against her brother who she was very kind to in many ways, but they were all extremely devout Catholics. The thing that I think shapes a huge amount of her life trajectory and also like a huge amount of her work is is the trauma of being molested by a priest, of, uh, by the priest that primarily molested her sister. Some say it's so remarkable, but I want to take a step back because I think that this actually might be something in a philosophical sense or in a political sense, or it might speak again to the question of legacy of how parsing out where her autobiographical, where her personal life begins and ends with relation to the theory that she created or the fiction that she was writing is really complicated. It's like they're inextricably bound. And we saw that quite a bit with Bataille, but he was also doing a ton of myth-making, but yet it feels like when she's writing the story of a little girl, it isn't just a story of a little girl. It's a story of a particular little girl, and it's her, but then also there's this element that's super relatable if you're a survivor of any kind of trauma. I mean, it's certainly an abusive family relationship, I would say. I think something that comes out so intensely is is from the harm that was done to her and her sister, who then comes to represent the family in, in a, a much more clear sense later in her correspondences when they're adults, is that the family, I think her trauma really makes clear to her how it is a system of hiding and negating and making of invisible harm for the sake of appearances and for the sake of the structures that it is. And so, um, Mm -hmm. and that she has like this real sense of, uh, of like how fucked up, which will like lead into her like political life later. Um, 
around like liking this worker and how that there's like such an intense class stratum that she thought like how could he be a worker if I liked him and um and then she says like at eight I was already no longer a human being (laughs) you know that this this like idea of um of of like this kind of suffocating uh condescending kindness of like the upper class to the quote-unquote lower class um suffocates any grain of generous and spontaneous human sympathy um all these people seem to be playing a role playing at life and and so I think it becomes like very very clear to her in a way that like really resonates with me as a queer person how um both the family and religious organizations really are things that codify harm that they allow harm to happen and they make space for it so that the structures are intact and are like unimpeachable so i was just thinking of the passages where she describes sort of stealing away and hiding away in the dusty attic so she's being so suffocated by having to go to church and be around her abuser and having to make sense of her relationship with her abuser and her sister's relationship with their abuser and her mother's compliance and willful ignorance of the abuse that's happening that she's just hiding away. I feel like she described herself as like hiding away and reading. It's like this moment of like who hasn't been there, like trying to just find some somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. She she she's very attached to to her books and I think that that is a theme throughout the entirety of her life where she has this intense attachment to the kind of like ec- ecstasy she's able to feel like through experiencing the stories of others through this like sense of communication through writing and also her own attempts to communicate through writing while at the same time wanting to live to the fullest despite having chronic health issues. And I think that's another interesting lens to look at her life through is is the lens of disability and chronic illness. So I, f- I found the quote about her hiding in the attic. <laughs> and once again, holiness sought refuge in the attic. It was a catch-all room filled with trunks and old scrap iron. The window never opened, was covered by a thick curtain that let the light of a stained glass window filter through. I stayed there for hours on end, fleeing there in, in the I cannot pronounce this word. It's for, and then, and then you, and and you, <laughs> plunging recklessly into my own. So it's a word around, and I think it's a lone word from French. One day a jumble of objects was moved aside in order to reach and open the casement window. It was the only room from which to see close up a captive balloon that had fallen into a neighboring garden. What's important is this sort of small, like hidden space. So this space that she made safe for herself to have her thoughts and to hide away. It's just very, very relatable. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so, like, also, it's within the story of the little girl that she first addresses her idea of the sacred, which I think we'll get more into um, a little bit later. But in the first appearance, it's between this sacred, venerated part of society which is exhibited and the dirty shameful, which must not be spoken, which must not be named. 
And for her, that's like the main drive that both of these two forces, these contradicting forces are the thing that appeals to her the most. And so like, there's the quote, a child's curiosity about her belly precisely when she knows that God sees all and follows her into the attic. And so it's again articulating, you know, the the idea that then appears in Bataille's eroticism that like taboos are the very thing that makes desire happen, that magnifies desire. It's also a, a collapsing of simplistic binaries and a collapsing of an entirely whole or autonomous version of the self. And by autonomous version of the self, I mean a version of the self that is self-determining in the sense that it doesn't share a world with others. So it connects back to this notion of communication and of being made by the world that we share and not by our inner life and that struggle of trying to communicate and draw out the aspects of ourselves that are unspeakable and to, to bring them around others, if that, if that makes sense. I'm trying to to speak as slowly and as articulate as possible about this because it's still something that I've really been mulling over and it's this notion of what it means to to maintain one's integrity while letting oneself be undone or while letting one's boundaries down so we'll be porous while being both a citadel and a chasm. Yeah, well, so she talks about the idea of this true life where she feels like the way that her family exists is is always a turn away from life, a negation of life, a negation of everything that is life affirming. And she wants to like radically embrace life, even when it's disruptive, even when it's fundamentally destructive. Mm -hmm. And so like she, (laughs) she literally says in reference to her mother that um, she disapproves of any expression of life. And killing joy and living from a filtered kindness that ignores humanity. And also, in reference to the mother, her situation allowed her to close herself off in total distrust to anything that was not family, which is capitalized, and in complete and total ignorance of anything that could be cheerful, active, engaging, lively, productive, or even simply human. And so I think that that, like, that really speaks to like this, um, this really fascinating way in which she is able to critique the family from very early on, which even though in her like earlier correspondences, we can see that she, you know, tries to maintain a good relationship and tries to reach out and, and make herself communicable, that that is something that she's never actually able to do, that that act of communication always falls short. It also speaks to how communion and communication, and I'm maybe getting a little bit ahead of myself in combining those two things or comparing them to, like, are also, they always, they always entail some kind of risk or a kind of necessary vulnerability. So you can see this in all of her correspondence where she'll go out and she'll say something super polemic. Like, she'll... In her letters to Bataille, she'll describe how it soothes her because she was so upset at him for snubbing her publicly to think about him being hit by a car. And then a day later, she'll write this long letter apologizing. (laughs) Um, 
but it's the same with her family is that she would she would be hurt by them and then she would really go out of her way to understand what had happened or to offer them some kind of grace and i i really mean grace in a very what i would understand to be with my plebeian non-initiated into catholicism's mind um catholic christian kind of grace and they just always deny it and it's the same with this motif of communion throughout her writing so when she first writes about receiving it in the story of a little girl how she had to swallow the host too and was ashamed of not knowing how and of asking questions and how her mother told her don't let it touch your teeth like it's so erotic it's and it's a it can be read as both the first communion but then also for me this is so sexual and within the context of her having been abused by the priest that gave her first communion is totally a description of also the abuse that she suffered so what a horrible struggle between my tongue and the lord full of saliva it took so long and was so unsuccessful that i started to doubt that it was period 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 god the idea took hold of me it was impossible to think of anything else i sobbed seeing my emotion the priest and the relatives congratulated themselves on my extreme piety so yeah it reads both of her being initiated into the church, like a sexual initiation, people around her turning away from what was happening, and her also refusing to be victimized by that experience. So she has this text that's just called the erotic text, and I think a lot of it is based off of this very abusive relationship she had with this man who was like extremely sadistic and domineering, who we know like put a leash around her neck at times and would walk her around on a leash and would um like just do really mean stuff like one time gave her a sandwich with shit in it and so it's not like these things were negotiated things but also lore at many many points you know identifies her sexuality as like profoundly masochistic and so including in all of the relationships that she has that are entirely consensual and which she is very much fully always looking to um to masochism as kind of her main erotic drive i would say and so in this erotic text like it it starts out with this man and this woman who interact with each other in this kind of passing way and then the woman kind of like says something dismissive And that basically leads to this encounter where the man assaults her and like puts a leash around her neck. And then all of this just very fascinating um, uh, relationship with like shit and mud and um, an excess. And then like she's praying to the point that um, uh, she was all prayer, all offering, and gets to the point where she's like on her elbows and literally crawling like a dog and says she entered in like a limping dog. And he puts his cock on this linen napkin and then it's this like taking of communion after this... uh, this incredibly, like, the most imaginably defiling 
interaction. And when she had taken communion and once his cum was swallowed, her fingers grew back, her nails polished Angelus, and her injured body regained full health. And so suddenly they're, you know, full and beautiful and clean. And she also identifies the woman as Lore, as as herself. And they proceed to do all of these like deeply defiling things within all of these like sacred things. So they shit in the fonts of holy water and they piss in the Siberium and then continue on each hour of which was a joy and a hatred. And then uh, leading up to a scene with this church boy, which ends with a crucifix being put in Lore's ass and uh, finally, a silver Christ was seen glittering in the shit. And it's such, it's such, honestly, like some of the most gorgeous erotic writing I've ever read. And so... Um, She's miles ahead of a tie. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it, it really is. It really feels like the most concrete expression of... Uh, of what Bataille was getting at with eroticism that there is, honestly. Something that really struck me with the difference of their writing or with their relationship and with how they wrote fictional characters that were also extensions of themselves or extensions of ideas that they were working on is that, and I also poured over more of Bataille's fiction over the last week trying to make sense of of Lore's work. Bataille writes a lot about very cruel relationships. Like, I don't think he's very good at writing about sex or making sex sexy, but he's very good at portraying emotional abuse and emotional manipulation. Most of his books illustrate some super selfish couples or coupling and how there's this penchant for them to hurt each other. It was just so interesting to me that she puts the erotic or the physical um or she's able to articulate that so well but there's something about the manipulative nature of the of the emotional that she leaves understated or or unsaid and and i think that that's useful and helpful as a writing style because then you can sort of work through it without being told what to think or what they're thinking but for bataille he's always telling you what they're thinking or how they're how they're cruel and i wonder to what extent those aspects of their writing complement each other or she inspired him or she had experienced things that then he was tried to put to words because he does that he tries to explain her experiences to her (laughs) yeah no absolutely i mean their correspondence and you know we're mostly getting it from from laura's side within Mm -hmm. within this these collective writings but it starts off you know with this deeply confessional deeply loving trusting relationship where laurel will say things like i wish only for our absolute faith in one another to remain never say you're not worthy of my trust again and then when it turns when it turns when it it seems like through context bataille is having an affair that it just becomes so so vicious like that this is just such a fucking good burn. The most Christian time of my life was with you, the cult <laughs> of the false victim with no pride. Write your book, 
fabricate yourself a novel. This pathetic being that only existed thanks to my jealousy. <laughs> oh, amazing. I love when she tells him that him and his friends are just topics of conversation. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, she's very vicious. And but then also just like this constant, um, you know, kind of going back and forth where like she writes to their mutual surrealist friend, Lyris, about how she still is so desperately in love with him and says one day he will place an ad in the paper seeking lost dog where she's like really, um, really grappling with her level of love towards him and her feeling of betrayal. And also like hearing this voice, this voice, you are only beginning to love him where like her perception of him as this ultimate humanness that she actually hasn't even Mm -hmm. started or she's just started to love him, that there's actually so much more to love, that there is something ungraspable about Bataille and that will always keep bringing her back. And so they're really, they're really like deeply heartbreaking to read have to think about what must have been a fundamental incompatibility between two masochists that had this incredible intellectual and emotional bond Mm -hmm. and at least from his writing you know that he was like very attracted to her and how much he he venerated her Mm -hmm. to the extent to which he made her a sacred object but then also and i think this is super fascinating he didn't turn her into a martyr so even with the secret society that they were still part of, of them wanting to have a sacrifice or a Jesus figure, you have this beautiful young woman that died young. And he, I like to think, this is my version, I like to think that he respected her too much to utilize her as a tool for a movement to make her inauthentic, that he cared about keeping her integrity as she would have wanted it rather than to, to venerate her as some false prophet to some small surrealist group i think that that's a really important point to bring up that she was the only woman in asafail their secret society and that through this incredibly like intense she would have made such a perfect martyr though oh she really would have and i mean i think in i think in some ways she ended up still becoming bataille's martyr in a way that like through her suffering through her intensive at communication to like give way to something else but then she also says things like to assert yourself as free you have to imagine me as your chains there has to be something to break and establish order to transgress so again going back to this you know idea of of the eroticism that like in their relationship she becomes the taboo that for him to access freenish he has Mm. to like break her has to cast her off because I think that he made her a martyr in, in spite of himself or in spite of his best intentions. And knowing that he was a librarian, and again, with my interest in the archive, he went through great lengths to go through, to comb through her fragments and to connect them to the deeper, more complicated aspects of her work and the work that she was involved in and the other writings that they had access to or had known about that they weren't able to publish he really wanted to keep the version of her that she thought and knew was meaningful while also being true to the kind of spontaneity that's necessary for sharing work. 
Because she would have made the perfect victim to coalesce a cult around, but he lets um, Lord be so much more complicated and multifaceted, and he wants to keep that aspect of her. He wants to keep the fact that that she's... I mean, I, I'm struggling so much to to articulate this because it goes back to my confusion and fascination and excitement about this notion of what it is to be intact, to keep one's integrity, so this moral integrity that doesn't just follow the line, that doesn't just adhere to heteronormative, patriarchal, like Catholic values, but then also has a very strong understanding of what it means to be in a world with others and what it means to remain true to oneself while also knowing that being true or being a self means that you have to be malleable, that you have to change because being human is allowing yourself to go through the process that is life, the changes that you're subject to or that you subject others to. He did everything he could to respect that. And he mentions this in one of the footnotes to his writing on her and to her last poem. He mentions how she had dog-eared a page and... I think it was on St. Teresa, and it was on the nuns talking about how they mourned the loss of control over the documents of St. Teresa's life, because it meant that those who didn't devote themselves to prayer would suddenly have access to it. And so the fear, and this was something that Bataille knew that she, she shared, and I just wrestled through my notes for this, it's this sympathy for um, Pythagoreanism, so the Pythagoreans, who believed that the sacred or the important had to be kept secret. So it's this desire for control, because once you let something out, it's no longer just yours. Everyone can have access to it. So it's this tension between knowing that you can't isolate yourself and still be human and still create meaning, but once you let something out there, you risk the fact that you're giving the things that are most dear to yourself. So you're sharing what is the most heart-trending, which is, those are his words, with those who might not see it as such. Like, absolutely. Bataille also says that what dominated her was the need to give herself completely and honestly, but then also that that was, like, always in tension with her being read in a way that didn't understand or didn't value the communication that she was trying to get across that there was this real sense of need to be understood not just in like a like what are you saying way but in a fundamental crossing of egos way <laughs> mm -hmm. which is again exactly what they had it's, it's their bond even though at least by everything that i've read they're very incompatible people super incompatible which is what makes their correspondence and the relationship so tragic is this is what this is why you can't be with a xerox copy of yourself <laughs> they are really similar but they're also they're also like quite a bit different it sounds to me like lore has a lot more fire in her than bataille one of the things about bataille that is like comforting to her is that 
he is always like this source of stability for her mm. you know the sense that like whatever she is feeling whatever like intensity of feeling and emotion that she can always get truth from Bataille and count on his evenness which I think is very much opposed to her intensity which is certainly goes far beyond Bataille <laughs> at almost all times <laughs> it's oceanic she two c words that she's constantly referring to him as as calm and then also as a coward uh, yeah she does definitely call him a coward <laughs> i was just thinking about her seeing him as this source of calm or source of reason and that made me sad for the moments that she bought into the binary that she had so successfully troubled and so successfully broken that reason versus unreason the intactness versus the being undone and how integrity necessarily involves both of them i think she has many moments of clarity around that so for instance bataille really leans on the marquis de sade in in the way that he, through this kind of like theater of the profane, was able to like create sort of this like access to the sacred, and and that like the point of Dasad is not to venerate him, but to recognize the value of Dasad. In that, she says at this one point in this letter fragment, "Do not forget that I have some pretensions too, and as much right as you to be inspired by Sad." I can still choose the role and interpret it as I wish. And you pretend to be inspired by Sod. Stories of family and household will never give me a sense of sacristy. You are in fact inspired by Catholic priests. Instead of libertinism, which could be a sort of powerful and happy impulse, even without crime, you want between us. You look like a child coming out of confessional, to be sure. <laughs> and I think that's the thing is like, like is like Laura has really has really been through the shit that this idea that this like organized religion or the family could be the sources of the sacred is completely alien to her in a way that it it isn't always to Bataille that Bataille does have some conservative impulses. And yet, you know, he's the one that thinks of himself as this kind of like revolutionary transgressor. <laughs> I also think it's, it's really funny in like one of, one of the after letters, um, uh, Bataille and Laura had this, um, this mutual friend who used to be a Catholic priest. And, and by the time mm -hmm. he writes this letter, he's, um, he's no longer a Catholic priest. He's lost his faith. But, uh, but he writes specifically about how when Lore was dying, that Bataille refuses to let a Catholic priest in despite her family's wishes. And like Bataille made the statement about how if a priest like entered the home that like how he'd like murder him. <laughs> like this, this very dramatic pronouncement. And it's really funny because this former Catholic priest friend talks about how absurd that seemed because even despite all of Bataille's pronouncements and theories around crime, he seemed like one of the least criminal people he'd ever met. That like Bataille is not 
a person who actually is much of a transgressor, you know? <laughs> it's a librarian. <laughs> yeah, he's a librarian. And it's like, yeah, and the idea of transgression is certainly very spicy for him. But how much is he actually capable of it in, in an actual lived sense? The way that she lived her life and realized transgression through her work and the way that she held herself to, again, these super exacting standards, it's super trauma-informed, or it's what we would now call trauma-informed if I want to be anachronistic, because she's so in tune or she's so sensitive to the repercussions of her actions. Like she, again, took very seriously the fact that she lived in a world with others, that these things weren't just symbolic, I don't know, accoutrement to whatever fun little sexy thing you're doing, or whatever edge lordy. Oh, I guess the existentialists are reading Marquis de Sade now. We'll have to read the Marquis de Sade because everyone's publishing papers on that. Like, I, I don't know, whatever kind of cottage industry of cutting edge transgression. Like she just removed herself from that. She, she was so, so careful. How, how are you? We've been recording for a hot minute now. I'm feeling pretty good. I'm, I'm still definitely a little overheated, but I'm, I'm drinking a lot of cold beverages and, um, yeah. Yeah, I'm 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 doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. I I'm again just so in love with this woman. I know. Uh, I know she's really lovely. She understands that part of being a human is to have all of these like paradoxes and contradictions within yourself. So like right right here she says he does not know what he wants. He wants what he does not want. He does not want what he wants. He would like to want to be perverse enough, libertine enough, so that nothing matters. The most dangerous opposition is carried within, the kind that forces you to go beyond what was, what is, the kind that negates tomorrow, the future, the kind that cannot exist with feelings of security, with life insurance, with domestic tranquility. And so she's always like very much grappling with this idea that the thing that she wants, that maybe her, you know, this like stable idea of self is that if she takes her thoughts to their logical conclusions, that they'll actually always destabilize that, that there's always this movement of desire and will that destabilizes. And so like at the very end of a story of the little girl, there's this line that is crossed off after the very last paragraph where she says, few know that by turning away entirely, they will find the salt of life. And so it's like by turning away from the, these structures that be, you will find the salt of life. And then that um, sentence comes back later in lots of her different fragments. Um, but particularly it comes back in Few know that in turning away, they would find the salt of life. In turning away, he is afraid of turning into a pillar of salt. Few know that in turning away from the straight path, they'd find pleasure. 
And so, you know, like as a queer person, like that's, it's incredibly poignant, this desire to do the hard thing, to turn, to turn and find the salt of life, despite, despite the fear of it, despite the taboo of it, despite the fundamentally destabilizing nature of it. And to continue to choose that, despite all of the incentives around you to do something else. Thank you so much for listening with us today. If you'd like to support our show um, and get access to our bonus episodes, which so far include our episode on Benedetta and on Mad God, you can subscribe to any level tier and obviously we appreciate uh, if you have more money to subscribe at a higher level tier but also we appreciate people who are just listening and are not paying us any money at all so you can go to www.patreon.com slash drunk church When it seemed that heaven was not for me Bless you for building a new dream Just when my old 